welcome to the fourth podcast in the second series of uh, Keith and Courtney in conversation. And today we're going to be talking about invasive blood pressure. And I'm here with Courtney Scales and myself, Keith Simpson, to bring you this uh, new podcast episode. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about non-invasive blood pressure. And within that, we covered some of the uh, values for systolic, diastolic and mean values and what they meant and how we would use them as an assessment of blood pressure. We're not going to cover that ground again. We're going to focus today particularly on invasive blood pressure, the indications for it, kind of equipment you need for invasive blood pressure, um, the setting up procedure, setting up an art line, getting readings from it. And we're going to look at what information we get from uh, IBP that we don't get from an IBP and see the benefits that we may get from using an arterial line. Um, and I'm going to um, start off by asking Courtney, uh, what, Courtney, do you think are in, in practice? What are the clinical indications for setting up an IBP line that, that, are, that give it benefits over non-invasive blood pressure? Sure. I quite like um, nurses championing, you know, being champions of putting in art lines of setting up the equipment. I'm quite passionate about that. And I think a lot of people perhaps think that invasive blood pressure monitoring is something that is performed only at specialist hospitals because of the equipment involved, the skill involved in placing art lines, uh, the cases seen. But actually, there's everyday cases that you could see in general practice where the, that patient might actually benefit from invasive blood pressure monitoring. So in terms of indication for monitoring, when do we want to use invasive over non-invasive for our patients? And I think for some of those everyday patients, it's ones that for me that perhaps are uh, a bit septic and could uh, have pressure problems. And I kind of want that beat by beat accurate analysis of the patient's blood pressure, um, or maybe it's going to be like a splenectomy or a case where perhaps they're going to bleed. And I also want beat by beat information. So, of course, there's indications in, in referral hospitals um, where... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt me, but I think it's uh, important for, for our listeners to sort of understand um, where we're going into invasive blood pressure. You're absolutely right with invasive blood pressure. We're going to get that real-time beat-to-beat, which you just don't get with non-invasive. Not sure we covered that totally last week so or last episode. So non-invasive, we might get a reading every you know, three minutes or four minutes or something, um, and we'd get the heart rate at that point. But what you just very clearly said there, and I think is something worth repeating, is that we're going to see every heartbeat, every pulse wave. So we've got absolute top-notch real data coming through. And I think that's really important. That's a big difference, isn't it, between that and non-invasive blood pressure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can. <laughs> I've been in situations where I've hooked up a non-invasive um, blood pressure, uh, like oscillometric, and then forgot to hit start, and I've just done one static reading. And then I've kind of been looking at the same reading for the last 15 minutes, but my patients had a huge anesthetic experience since then. So that's the thing about invasive blood pressure is it is beat by beat. Every single time that heart beats, you get a waveform from that, and then you have the pressure associated with that. So it is going to be those critical patients where you do want to notice more than just a five-minute trend without running a oscillometric every two or three minutes, because that's just constant occlusion on a limb. But, you know, there's cases where they might bleed 
where they are septic, where you want to see if your fluid therapy or your presses are working. And we're talking quickly, you know, we're not talking about the, the bitch spay that's got a little bit of a slow bleed going on. We're talking about our very sick patients. And I don't think we should be put off by some of our critical patients that even have um, coagulopathies or are they thrombocytopenic? Those are, in fact, some of our patients where we might be wanting to monitor them even more. And people think, oh, the last thing I want to do is stick an outline into these patients. But we just have to be very careful with our technique and placing it in those patients. But for me, at a general practice level, I would be definitely wanting to put this into perhaps my pyo patient that is really poorly and septic. Or is it the Labrador that ate a bone last week and he's hunched and he's collapsed and he is, you know, obtunded and I want to be knowing beat by beat what his vessels are doing, what his pressures are doing. Um, and especially a splenectomy or something that's bleeding, bleeding like that. And then even when we move into the referral world, just for for those that perhaps have in their mind, like, oh, this is such a high specialist thing we do. Of course, sometimes we're doing spinal surgery where the approach is actually right where kind of we take our blood sample, where we take our jugular blood sample is actually um, it's called a ventral slot. That is our approach into fixing some cervical compressions of slit discs. And you have to move these huge blood vessels out of the way. And you have to also move the vagus nerve out of the way. And, you know, sometimes you can look at the vagus nerve and upset it um, and get this huge vagal in our patients. So, for me, it isn't just a referral practice type of modality, and it is something you can add to, you know, you can get multi-parameters in your practice with the modality to do invasive blood pressure monitoring. I don't think it is, you know, mythical and um, unachievable in practice. And yeah, I think it's something that nurses can champion and be huge, huge, um, you know, can add it to your skill list. I think, I think that's great. And, and I think, there's almost a perception that it's it's too hard to do in normal practice, and it's it's a skill that's you know difficult to achieve, and only the only you know the the preserve of the uh, referrals or the or the specialist clinics, and and that's not really the case, is it? I think if you can place an IV, you can probably place an R line. Um, I agree. But yeah. there is there is that sort of um, not a stigma, that's the wrong word, but it's just kind of a little bit of fear around it. Um, so if if you know if I were yeah, a nurse in uh, general practice, and I've been in practice, you know, sometime pretty well accomplished and happy with my, you know, IV lines and things like that. And there's no one in the practice that's really skilled at doing art lines. Where would I go? How would I get that information so that I would feel competent to to do my first art line? Where, where would you start for that sort of that sort of person? What advice would you offer? My advice is to honestly give it a go. Of course, even placing an IV isn't without risk to the patient. And it's the same when we place an arterial catheter. That's not without risk to the patient of, um, you know, hematomas or nerve damage or scraping along bone and ligaments. So my advice and definitely what happened with me, and I wouldn't even consider it to be a deep end. I was just told, place the artery, put your fingers over it, uh, aim for that. And I'm like, oh, right. Okay, there we go. So I was a bit of a deep end. So I think how I would encourage nurses to give it a go is get really familiar with the anatomy. You know, it's it's not uh, you don't have to go and get every anatomy textbook and start memorizing things. In fact, Google artery in dog hind leg, print it out and stick it next to your patient and just get a visualization landmark wise of where the artery is going to be. But the procedure itself is, you know, like you just said, if you can place a, a um 
an IV catheter, I do think you can place a arterial catheter. Of course, there's a little bit of skill with it, but let, let's just, should we just walk through the process of, of let's, let's just do it together. So we have our patient, they are um, on their back, so they're in a dorsal positioning, and I've just got their legs just relaxed as if, relax as if we're clipping for a bitch spare or whatever, you know, their legs are just nice and relaxed on the table. So I prefer sometimes just to keep the the leg um, kind of slightly elevated on a sandbag. Um, but otherwise, you know, I prefer, you can put them in lots of different places. So you've got the dorsal pedal artery. Um, I've never touched, gone near, placed it into ephemeral, but you, know, you can do. Um, or the coccygeal artery as well in the tail. That's quite nice. And think about it. We put Dopplers on these. We know how to palpate for that artery. Um, same thing when we are palpating arteries in the hind leg as well to count heart rates or whatever we're doing. We know where those arteries are, but that dorsal pedal for me, I really, really like it. So I get everything prepared beforehand. What you're going to need, you're going to need a number 11 scalpel blade because you are going to have to punch through the skin. Um, you're going to need a normal IV catheter. That's completely fine to use. Um, you're also going to need your transducer uh, set that you can buy um, from most of your supply companies as well. And yeah, a bit of saline flush as well. Get all of your tape ready that you're going to need. I like, I wouldn't use a paper tape when I'm securing an arterial catheter. I, I want that to stick in the patient. I really do not want to be under the drapes trying to rejig anything. It's never going to work if it slips. Um, and some cleaning solution as well. And of course, some clippers. So, right, you've got your patient, they're on their back, their legs laying out. Just clip as if almost like you're placing a Doppler on the dorsal pedal, a nice little wee square clip on your patient there. Then you are going to prep that site just as if you're prepping for an IV. The important thing is, is just not to, to furiously scrub the area because the artery does like to spasm. And in all honesty, I don't really know how, but they do hide and suddenly you can't feel the pulse. Then you're going to go off and just wash your hands. So you really do want this to be placed aseptically. Wash your hands and then you come back to your setup there. Um, whether or not you wear gloves, I mean, the gold standard is you're going to put gloves on. Um, but for me, I have just very clean hands when I go to places because I really want to be feeling those vessels. Chances are in some of those septic patients, they're like real distal peripheral perfusion. It's very difficult to palpate pulses anyway. And I keep talking about palpating pulses because if you're placing an IV catheter, someone's raising the vein. There is nothing to raise here. You are palpating pulses. You're basically going in blind when you are placing an arterial catheter. Okay, so you've prepped your site. I'm right-handed in this instance, so I lay with the patient's head on my left-hand side, and I palpate the artery with my left hand, and I put two fingers over where I think the artery is, and then you will literally feel the pulse against your fingers and that is where you can pretty much close your eyes because now you're just going in by feel um you know there's nothing to visualize at this stage there's no artery that's been raised or anything like that so you've palpated the artery and to be honest at this point when i'm trying to find the artery and i'm doing it now as i speak i'm closing my eyes and i'm really zoning in because sometimes if it's a cat or a small dog um you really just need to, to zone out and just start to, to palpate where the artery is. And then what you're going to do once you have an idea on where the artery is, pinch up the skin, and then that's when you're going to pierce the skin and break through the skin with your number 11 scalpel blade. And that is just because if you try and pass a catheter um, into 
a uh, artery, you really want that catheter to be sharp. You don't want it to have been blunted by going through the skin. And look, why do we want that catheter to be more sharp than we do for a vein? Well, those arterial walls, they're much, they're, they're very muscular. Um, think about all of the constriction and dilation and all of that action that that vessel has to do. They're very muscular. So you do not want to be blunting your catheter going through the skin. So just take the work out of that. Make a nick in the skin. And now this is where the fun begins. Um, you're, you know, you've made your little nick. You've got in your right hand for me in particular as a right-handed nurse. I'm now holding my IV catheter. Whether or not I have flushed it already is is down to preference. Some people prefer to flush their arterial catheter so that the moment they get a little bit of blood in the hub of that catheter, that actual whole catheter hub turns a, you know, a, a hue of pink, basically. Um, so you don't need this pure blood flashback to come through. So I, for bigger dogs, often don't flush, and that's just a me thing. But for smaller patients, I sometimes will put a little bit of saline into the hub of the catheter. So now I'm palpating with my left hand, palpating where that artery is. I've made my stab incision to the skin. I place my catheter just over the top of that stab incision. And now I'm going to really confidently, I, I can feel I'm right over that, that artery. I'm now going to purposefully, firm, just go boof and try and get into the artery straight away. Um, and you do have to make a nice purposeful movement because you are trying to get through a thick muscular arterial wall. And then if I don't get in, I pull, I pull back and I straight back in. But, you know, of course you are going in blind, but you, you are almost one with where the pulse is in, in relation to where your fingers are. So you do want to kind of hit this angle just to break and get into the artery. And the moment you see that little bit of flashback in the artery, you push a tiny little bit more, literally a millimeter more, because if you can imagine if you have this really flexible artery and you've just got the, this very sharp bevel of your catheter just in the arterial wall um, and it's just getting a little bit of blood, you cannot advance them. They are very problematic to try and advance. So once you have um, you know, got that tiny little bit of flashback, almost go in like a millimeter more and then flatten or put your catheter parallel to the um, to the skin now, maybe at an angle of about you know, 10 to 30 degrees, and then you just want to advance your catheter off as if you're advancing it into a vein. And there is going to be blood here. So this is where, um, you know, once you've confidently got it in and you've advanced your catheter off the stylet, you now need to pull the stylet out and there's going to be blood. And what's quite comforting about this is you can watch it go but, you know, you're not sitting around watching, <laughs> just watching the patient bleed. But I always snug a little wee piece of gauze underneath. Um, you know what it's like trying to tape something into a, a, a literally a bloody mess. The tape just doesn't stick. Um, and then from there, I'm either going to want to, you know, remove that stylet, really quickly put a, um, like a little wee T connector on there, or I'm just going to put a cap straight on. And then I'm really going to tie um, and secure that arterial catheter in place. Um, once it is in place, you want to make it very clear uh, that it is an arterial catheter because you absolutely do not want to put any kind of drug into that at all. And that's very much the process of placing the catheter. And I think that's the part that scares people the most. You know, once you attach it to, once you, which we can talk about, once you attach it to your multi-parameter and you start getting your numbers, how is that any different to when you're, you know, 
confidently taping in your Doppler, getting the number with your SPIG, or wrapping a cuff around the foot and then getting your oscillometric. The hard bit where people say there is a te- there is a big technique and you need lots of practice to place arterial lines. Honestly, I think the best thing I got taught, which removed the fear, was there's an artery there. Feel it. Aim for it. Off you go. And you kind of think, oh, yeah, OK. I, I, you know, you take away the stigma of it's going to be very difficult. It's very technique based. Um, literally click the leg as you would normally. Palpate for the pulse with one hand. With your other hand, you are, you know, going through a stab incision confidently piercing into the artery, leveling it out and advancing it. Brilliant. So I think, yeah, so you need to know your anatomy, don't you? So if you're going to go, if you're going to go on the hind leg, study that hind leg. If you're going to go, you know, front leg, study this front leg, you know, wherever you're going to go, coccygeal, just study that anatomy. Yeah, and print a picture, stick it next to the leg. Um, Yeah. I think I think it is an instance where you almost we all know what it was like the first time we intubated, the first time we placed an IV. We refreshed our anatomy and then we had to give it a go. Yeah. So we had to I, do it. I, it's a process, it's a learning curve, isn't it? But I think it's not out with the bounds of anybody in practice to, to do this, is it? No, I I don't think so. And I think if you have blood gas um analysis in your practice, you might already be doing art sticks with a normal needle and syringe but this is where we're just placing a catheter instead and i'm also i do not want um, to give the impression that oh give it a go it will all be fine there there are real risks here we could traumatize the the leg we could um rip part of the artery this is i mean things like this have never happened we could get a big hematoma we could get air emboli when we're trying to place um, a arterial catheter. We could damage the nerves if you don't know your anatomy. We could cause necrosis to the tissue locally if we don't label it correctly and make it very clear that the only thing that goes through this is going to be saline. We're not going to put Hartman's through it. We're going to put just saline. So whilst I say if you can place a, ve- a venous catheter, you can place an arterial one, as with absolutely anything, refresh your anatomy and try and understand why the technique is the way it is so that you don't cause any harm to that patient. Great. So I think I think probably hopefully a lot of people will be encouraged by that. And I think one thing I'd like to make clear is that preparation is everything. The preparation for knowing the anatomy, but also having the kit ready, you know, get that. We haven't really talked about the the need for a, a pressurized drip bag or con- constant infusion or passage of fluid through that sensor. That's quite important, isn't it? Um, maybe you just like to go over that that procedure as well and, and take the, the 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 sort of the novice um, first timer through the whole process of setting up that that line, flushing the catheters, yep. zeroing the catheter. Those little processes, which again may seem daunting, but I think. It's like anything we do, you know, learning to drive a car, it's all a process. It becomes yeah. second nature. But I think if you haven't done it before, just knowing what's what you have to do is a great comfort because then you think, okay, I understand the process. I, I can actually do this. You know, let's go and buy that bit of a kit. Let's get those mm-hmm. those bags, those those pressure bags, let's get the um the art lines and the sensors. We've got our multi-parameter will support it. We've never used it, but we can use it on our current multi-parameter. So let let's do it. So do you think you can take the the novice user through that that initial sort of setup and yeah. uh, so we, so we're at the point where we've nicely got our catheter in yeah everyone's giving about, each other a high five yeah <laughs> everybody's happy you've congratulated each other yeah well done you've just placed your first art line but now here we go let's use so it. so what had we done just before that point you know we've got all this all the kit ready to to connect to it so do you want to take us through that part yes so like i said preparation is key so i 
you know, walked you through preparing for the simple catheter placement, you know, get all everything ready, have it all close by, et cetera, et cetera. But do the same for the equipment um, that you're going to use to set up the IBP, to set up the flushing process, everything like that. So what you're going to need is, uh, depending on your setup, you can either, you know, these, these arterial catheters are really prone to clotting. So we're going to need to not only set up a transducer that is attached to our arterial line so we can get our reading, we need to have something there just to keep this line very patent because they do, they can clot in minutes. Um, They can clot in five or 10 minutes if you don't have this constant flow of saline go through them. So before I'm you know, touching that patient with a catheter to try and get into the artery, I'm definitely getting everything lined up. And you know what? Preparation-wise, you do the same when you place an O-tube, you do the same when you place an N-O-tube. Everything is the same. We prepare it and lay it all out. So we are, we've got our multi-parameter. It's got the functionality of IBP. Um, now what we need to do is a lot of preparation for saline, for blinds, for flushing and everything like that. So let's consider that you are in a practice that uh, is going to hook up your saline bag to keep the uh, catheter patent. So you're going to have your saline bag on a drip pole uh, or wherever you hang it off. And you are going to plug in a normal drip set as as usual, and you are going to flush that through. That's no different to something that we do every single day in practice. But from there, we now need to connect. You know, this is a big part of our IBPs is that we will have a transducer that does feed into the machine and convert that pressure into an electrical signal to you know, give it us a waveform on the on the multi-parameter. So we, do, we are going to have to have a transducer there, which is something that you buy for every patient. Um, and so you've got your drip bag, you've put your drip um, line in, you've flushed that through, and now that's meeting your transducer. From your transducer, we actually also need to have like another very, it's not just an everyday extension set, but you get a special arterial extension set that uh, also needs to be flushed through from your transducer. And it will go from your transducer to your patient. There will be another line that goes to your catheter that you've placed on the back leg, but you need to flush the air out of that. The last thing you ever want to do is be putting air into an artery because you could get air embolisms. So you flush through your, you've got your bag on the wall, you've got your drip set, you flush that through to the transducer. Now you've attached on your line that's going to go from the transducer to the patient, but you haven't attached it to the patient yet. And now you've just flushed through that. And there's got to be no bubbles, no bubbles as per usual in everything. Now, what we also need to do is we can't just have this free fall. (laughs) We can't just have a free falling bag of saline. trying to beat against you know this arterial pressure we're going to have to put that bag under pressure so as well as a saline bag that you've got hooked up on your drip pump drip pump you're going to also need a pressure bag and sometimes we might have this in our crash kit for when we're trying to get large volumes of fluids into some of our crashed patients um you know you're going to slip your bag in there and then your saline bag into kind of like a how could you describe it if you weren't sure like a like a sock <laughs> it's almost like a sock with a bladder, an air bladder around it. And you have a spig and you pump, 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 pump. And you put pressure around this bag um, up to about 300 millimeters of mercury. And what that does is it will provide a flow through that um, arterial catheter at about, you know, kind of three to four million hours. So just a few, a few drops every now and then just to keep everything patent. Um, and then we can go and attach that to our patient.
So that's one way that we could do it. If we don't have, um, you know, a pressure bag or we're not going to hang up a big bag on a drip pump and have that as the way to constantly flush through our catheter, you can also just use about 20 mil syringes and fill those up with saline as well. But you need to remember to keep your catheter patent and kind of every five minutes when you're taking an anesthetic recording, give the catheter a little bit of a, of a flush through the transducer. Is, is that all okay so far? You're happy yeah, that's with absolutely that? fine. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Because I think some people look at these uh, transducers and they are, you know, they've got, normally got at least three ports on them. And it's kind of yes. like, oh, okay. Like where, a three-way what, tap, really. What, what, where do I put things? So I think it's clear, you know, we one point we're feeding in, and it tells you nearly every pack you open, it's got like a, uh, a little diagram in there, explodes to show you, an exploded diagram to show you, you know, where to put things. So we've got a line coming down for that pressurized pack into what I would call the, the back end of the, the transducer, yeah. and at the, at the front end of the transducer. So direct line from, the, from where it's coming in, we've got that going to the art line. And often at a right angle, with a tap on it as well, we got them another port, and that's really for blood sampling and for um, zeroing purposes. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've got it quite clear now. You know that setup. So there's there's preparation there because all that's got to be set up. The bag's got to be pressurised. It's got to be ready. Transducer's got to be set up. It's all got to be flushed through. So we've got no air bubbles, and we've got to understand the procedure for zeroing. So I think that's probably the, one of the last things to do. Um, so do you want to talk through the zeroing process? Yeah, of course. So, um, and I was just thinking for someone who hasn't seen the setup as well of what comes in an IBP kit, just imagine a three-way tap stuck on something half the size of your cell phone, which is the transducer. So, you know, it's very difficult to connect things in the wrong places. Um, so we actually do need to put that transducer in the correct position in relation to our the way that our patient's laying and where their heart is. And you remember from our previous podcast, we talked a lot about cuff position. And if things are too high or too low, that can, you know, from the heart, that can also affect um, our blood pressure readings. So it's not just a matter of, um, you know, what it's like on some of these operating tables. You've got a little box of flush there, you've got drugs there, and you can't just throw your transducer um, after you've, you know, connected it to the patient because you've got rid of all the saline. Oh, sorry, you flushed it through a saline. You've got rid of all the bubbles. You can't just put your transducer on the table, you need to put that transducer, um, you need to put that at the level of the right atrium. And that's a little bit of a guessing game. But for example, if your patient is in dorsal recumbency on their back, kind of put it at their, their shoulder point, you'll probably be okay there. And then if they um, are in sternal, what I like to do is just pull that elbow, kind of try and wedge it backwards and see where that elbow is at 90 degrees. And that's kind of where I might try and put my transducer. Um, and then if that patient's laying lateral, that's also a fun one. Uh, but I will just put it at the level of the sternum if the patient's laying in a lateral position. So you do the height of that transducer is really important. And how do you put the height up? To be honest, um, you can use Inco sheets, you can use sandbags, you can put it on a lunchbox and tape it there. Alternatively, for some of our different transducers, depending on what kind of multi-parameter you have, you can get little, um, little transducer oh. holders. And they will go on, go on the yeah, IV little pole. clamps, and they'll go on your um your IV pole, and that is easy peasy because you just lower or put up your IV pole. It's really nice and easy. Um, it looks quite fancy as well. They're just like a little clip basically that sticks to your IV pole, and that's where your transducer is, and then you just move that up and down to get to the level of the heart of the right atrium. So you do need to put that in position before you do anything else. Brilliant. Okay. So, so I think so. What we've done then, we've got 
we've got our art line in now, we've got our, our catheter in, we've got it connected, we've done our, um, we've flushed through prior to that, so we've now actually probably got signals coming back to our um, to our monitor. So we may have something on the screen, but we may not. So we've got all that set up. I think, you know, what we want to do now is zero it, which is a fairly simple procedure. So we're going to, you know, we're going to close that port off to the art line to the patient that exposes the port, which is typically an open port, empty port. We're going to use that when that's uh, um, in that position. We're just going to go to the monitor, a couple of normally a couple of clicks, go into the um, IBP menu. And there'll be a zero IBP, and you you click on that, and it goes beep beep, or it says zero zero, or it says um, uh, calibration complete, or whatever the terminology is to indicate your zero has been done, and then you just then go back to your um, your transducer, put that port the off port back to the open one that that opens the line, and you then should start to see signals on the screen, and then we've got our um, our signals coming in there. So I mean, how do you how do you um, Visualize that. I mean, it's difficult for our listeners because they can't see. We can't show them a transducer. How do you visualize that one, Courtney? Yeah, I wish we could draw. So I think if we had to visualize it, um, visualize a three-way tap that has a port at three o'clock, twelve o'clock, and nine o'clock. Normally, when we are um, just a normal operation, getting signals from our patient to the transducer off to the machine, we have ports three and nine o'clock open because we've got, you know, three o'clock is where our sailing bag is connected to. And then nine o'clock is the line, the like a drip line, but it's not just a simple old piece of extension line going from our transducer to our patient. That's usually always open that three till nine to get our readings. But when we want to um, zero our IBP to atmosphere so that what we start getting is just this nice fresh baseline from our patient is we end up shutting off nine o'clock. And we turn our, basically think of a three-way tap, we turn so that we open up between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock. So where our sailing bag is, um, our transducer, and then open to the atmosphere. That's all we're doing. We're just going from 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock being open to then shutting off 9 o'clock and just opening up 3 o'clock and 12 o'clock to zero our um, IBP to atmospheric pressure. And we kind of do the same thing in reverse when we want to use that arterial line for blood sampling. So if you imagine, I know we're, we're not up to that, but just while I'm quickly visualizing, if we want to then take a arterial blood gas sample from our art line, from our transducer without having to shuffle under the drapes, what you do is you just shut off port three o'clock so that you open up from the patient port nine o'clock to where you're going to stick your syringe is port 12 o'clock. And then literally you'll just draw back on your syringe and get your blood sample and away you go. So yeah, that's how kind of I would try and visualize it. It's a three o'clock, 12 o'clock, nine o'clock. And usually to get our readings, we always just want three o'clock and nine o'clock to be open. So I hope that Excellent. helps. Otherwise, we, I'd love to draw. I'm using my hands. Yes. But, um, <laughs> I'd love to draw it. Um, and then, yeah, we'll hopefully start to get some very accurate readings on our multi-parameter and some waveforms for us to analyze. Yeah, so we should then start to see a waveform on the screen. And we're going to see typically, you know, what looks... In mostly in character, like a pulse ox waveform. So if you've not yes. seen an IBP waveform before, it's going to look more in the same sort of outline as a pulse ox. Um, but next to it, of course, we're going to get some systolic values, we're going to get some diastolic values, and we're going to get a mean arterial value. And this is the gold standard. So we can really start to believe those numbers. Mm -hmm. I just want to qualify that about whether we can really start to believe it. I'm just going to go back to something you just said very briefly. You said it has to be the right 
arterial sampling line. And I, I want to stress how important that is. If you're using anything other than a dedicated arterial sampling line, you're really going to upset the way that that waveform is presented. So if you've ever had anything to do with um, invasive blood pressure, you'd have heard of the terms uh, damping. There's there's critical damping, there's over damping, and there's under damping. And I don't want to get too involved in the physics of it, but it is quite important to understand those terms because if you have either over damping or under damping, then it's really going to seriously affect your not only the, the outline of your waveforms, but also the numbers that you get. So how do you know you've got the right uh, degree of damping? Well, nine times out of 10, if you've bought the correct transducer, the correct um, arterial extension line, you're going to have the correct amount of damping. But things can affect it. So, you know, you may have to get an arterial line from a different supplier, or you maybe you put in a very long art line, you've got a couple of three-way taps in there. There are ways to check it. And I just want to, let's talk about um, um, over damping. So what that means is, the term is slightly confusing, but what it's saying is, it's just squishing the signals. The signals that are coming back as that pulse waveform look nice and sharp, they look like the pulse source waveform, but by the time they get to the sensor along that line, they're all rounded off. So you don't see a nice sharp peak to the, to the, the you know, the um, systolic upstroke, and then it starts to come down. And normally you'd have a little nice dichrotic notch. That all starts to disappear and it all looks a bit rounded and, and, um, and it gets smaller in size. Um, is that because it, the tubing absorbs it if it's not, not you know, not the correct that's type of the tubing. That's exactly what it is. So you have to have a tubing that's to the correct hardness. And you'll find that arterial lines, if you try and bend them or curl them up, are quite firm. You, if you put them between your finger and thumb and try and squeeze them, you can't squish an art line, but you can squish a, a side, stream, side stream sampling line. You can squish a, yeah. um, a uh, um, yeah, drip tubing. But one, what a lot of people feel tempted to do sometimes is use a side stream sampling line as an art line extension and that will over damp their signals and what you'll get then is much rounding of the signals and because it gets rounded you don't reach the peak value so your systolic value is less and because it's rounded at the bottom end you don't reach the diastolic so your diastolic reading is higher so you get a reduction in systolic an increase in diastolic value the good news for everybody is that the mean arterial pressure is largely unaffected by the degree of damping. So trust your mean. If even if your um your waveforms are looking a bit bit iffy, your mean arterial is going to be uh, something you can hang your hat on. So I think I've I've seen this before where I've um had I've lost part of my signal before, and I'm sure I saw my systolic as 80, my diastolic as 80, and my mean. As 80. So yeah. of all of that, some people will just go, oh, it's all pointless. It's not working. But actually what you're saying is because the systolic was coming down and the diastolic was coming up, I mean, it's pretty much going to be correct in those instances. Well, the situation you described there actually is where what you've had is a, de a decreasing signal magnitude that's that's gone on over time. So it's probably done at one, I started off at 120 over 80 and a mean of 93, your standard stuff. Okay. Then because of either kink in the catheter or a blockage in the transducer or blood getting back into the transducer some action has meant that it's it's lost magnitude of that signal so it's then gone 110 over over 90 and the, and the mean's gone to 97 and then it's gone 110 over um 95 so we're, we're diminishing our pulse high and our mean is getting you know always staying in the middle there but we're losing signal to the point where 
very cleverly or very I, I have to hand it to the to the monitor is actually measuring like 81 over 79 you know you're actually measuring that but at some point it just says everything's at 80 and that's why you get 80 80 80 and that would normally you've probably got a block catheter or a king catheter yeah i just give it a, a flash and away we go and, and I, I think I that's mean, just got to put that leg in the right place as well you're talking about kinked catheter last thing you want is a kinked leg Yes, exactly. Yeah, extend the arm so you haven't got that yep. that that restriction on the artery and losing the pulse. Yeah. Um, so if you've got um, uh, uh, over damping, that's normally going to be cute, uh, caused by using the wrong tubing. To be fair, so there's an incorrect matching between the tubing and the transducer. Um, critical um, under under damping. Sorry, under damping is a different thing. And actually, under damping um, is where you haven't got enough sort of spring in the walls. There has to be a degree of spring. Otherwise, we get into this situation we call resonance, which, um, again, another physics term. But basically, if you imagine the upstroke of the IVP waveform, it is an upstroke, and then it's a, a little peak and then back down again. If you've got um, underdamping, you, that, that shoots up too far. And then as it comes down, it shoots down too far and you get what we call ringing. And you can see little extra spikes appearing at the turning points of the of the waveform. Um, and um, that's something, you know, again, incorrect tubing is going to cause that. Um, uh, maybe some uh, transducer coupling mismatches, things like that. But there is a test and you'll hear about it. All the textbooks probably talk about it. If you go online, you'll see YouTube videos about it. And actually, it's a very useful thing to do. It's called the square wave test or the flush test. And there's that funny little thing on the transducer. Everybody looks and wonders what it does. It's a little um, jelly type, rubber type, um, little nozzle or a little prong on it. You can pull it up and you notice if you actually pull it up, just sort of experiment, pull it up. It will allow the drip bag to force the fluid right through um, at full rate, you know, not the two to three mils per minute. You're going to go through it you know, several mils per, uh, per second or whatever. It's going to really flush it through. Uh, or you squeeze it, you get the same thing. So what you actually do once it's all in place is that you, if you want to do a square wave test, you just squeeze it or pull that little toggle up and you just get a rapid rising pressure in that waveform. All it's doing is pushing a bit of saline into the uh, patient so it does no harm at all. But you watch your monitor at the same time, and that pressure wave will then shoot to the top of the screen uh, or top of the trace, and uh, it can go no further. So you get a flat line across the top of the, the trace, and then you, when you, you just do it for about half a second and let go, and it drops down again. And it will drop down and it will overcompensate, and it will go below the, um, the baseline you had before. And then you get a little bit of what we call ringing, and it will just be like, go right down and then it'll come back up again and then it go back down and back up and then it should level flat and then you should pick up another um a pulse because you've left it in the um the line and that's what we call um the flush test and what you're looking for is two oscillations like um it goes down up down up and then it goes back flat again if you get what looks like a you know up down up down up down up down and getting smaller and smaller and smaller that's called ringing and if that's the case then you've got an um, an underdamped system Okay, and if you've got an underdamped system, again, it's going to be a compatibility problem. If you've got an overdamped system and you do that that uh, test, your square wave won't be square. It will it might rise fairly quickly, but you'll notice a slope on it. It'll have a flat top because it can't go any more than the top of the trace, but it won't fall down nice and uh, rapidly. It'll fall down with a slope, and that's because it's overdamped. And again, that's a compatibility um, a tubing problem. Or just check for bubbles in your um, airways. Check for poor uh, junctions that you haven't got a problem where you've got your art, um, art line connected to your 
catheter or connected to the transducer because if they're loose and they're leaking that's going to affect them, that's going to over damp it as well so that's that's when you see about those terms over damping and under damping um, and that's how you test them and a critically damped um system sound bad but but that's what you're aiming for it's called a critically damp because it's perfectly <laughs> damped um, it's the word critical isn't it you're like yeah, oh. <laughs> it, yeah it, it kind of suggested it's wrong but that's what you're aiming for and the, and the terminology is slightly confusing but you don't want over damped you don't want under damped is what we call a uh, critically damped which is a normally damped system um mm-hmm. so having got having got the right setup we know it's working correctly we've done our little flush test in our square wave test we got a little um, two or three oscillations oh sorry one or two oscillations of bounce and then we're back to normal we've now got a waveform that can tell us several things um and it's a difficult medium to describe um with our audio medium here but we imagine we've got an upstroke so this is the the very rapid rise as the uh, pressure wave goes up rounds off at a peak comes back down uh, relatively slowly and then we often get a little blip which we call a dichrotic notch. Dichrotic notch is where we got aortic valve closure there. So from the point where we start the upstroke to the point um, where we got that dichrotic notch, that's systole. Okay, and then from the point of the dichrotic notch um, to the point where we start the next upstroke, that's diastole. So we can actually look at our waveform and, and, and very easily um, pick out systole and diastole. So that's a useful thing we can get from our our system, uh, from our waveform. And what else can we see? Well, we've got an area under the curve. And again, I don't want to get too, you know, sort of physics about it, but how big is that area that, that, that's under the waveform, in other words? Is it a, a very narrow, sharp up a rise and a very quick down, so we've got a very small area under the uh, under the curve, or is it a broad one? And, and the broader it is, then that's the more more energy, the more flow that we have in that um, that area. So we've got some um, qualitative assessment of of output there. Okay. And the other thing I think is really useful to look at um, from the point of the dichrotic notch to the baseline is how quickly does that fall down? Okay. Um, because if it falls slowly, that's an indication that we've got fairly high systemic vascular resistance okay because we're talking about two pressure levels if the pressure level is high in the in the uh, um, peripheral uh, um, circulation then it's going to take a while for that pressure to, to to drop if the peripheral circulation offers a low resistance it'll drop quickly so there's an indication there how quickly that that line falls off as to in um the degree of systemic vascular resistance. So you can use that as a, as a guide to um, how your patient's performing. If you see changes in it, it indicates a change in vascular resistance. So we've got quite a lot of information um, coming from there. Um, there's a lot more information. I mean, the, the machines now, some of the human machines are wonderfully uh, intelligent and they'll be looking at the, the upstroke rates and the um, uh, and, and um, using that to predict cardiac output. That's, I think, something we're, we're kind of running out of time now, not something we're going to get into now. That's that's a, another topic in itself, but there's a lot of information in there. But the basic information is you've got B2B heart rate. You've got an indication of the sort of um, qualitative assessment of cardiac output. You've got an indication of the systemic vascular resistance. Um, and you've got uh, an idea of um, the regularity by tying it in with your um, your ECG as to um, the regularity of your beats. And as I say, you're seeing it beat to beat. A lot of information there. And one last thing I'm gonna talk about um, just before we sign off is 
there's if you're using obviously we talk a lot about ventilation ventilation is going to have an effect on what you see on your uh, your blood pressure waveform and this is again really quite useful but you will notice if you perform an ippv that during the inspiratory phase when we're pressurizing that chest and getting air going into that airway we are compromising or potentially compromising venous return so you would not be surprised to see an effect on the on the blood pressure waveform and what you would actually see in a healthy animal is as that pressure um, rises we'll see that the the whole trace will tend to be shifted downwards a little bit okay so we've got it running across the screen quite nicely ippv starts on that or inspiration starts on that patient we start see that blood pressure line the whole complex is all being not necessarily decreasing in size initially very much but just shifting down the screen a bit then they get a little bit smaller themselves as the size decreases then uh, end of inspiration the the traces get slightly taller and then the whole thing shifts back up to a normal uh, position in the screen where it was before so what you're seeing there is an indication of the effect of ippv on a shifting mean arterial pressure if you're lucky to get enough um, beats in during that um, that pressure uh, of the chest then you'll see that the mean arterial pressure is going to drop as you're doing that and that's the effect that we've talked about before and we'll sure we talk about again the effect of ippv on on pressure uh, the systemic pressure within the patient mm. so that's quite useful and it's a normal phenomenon that's the body actually responding to um, the pressure changes in the in the chest but what will exaggerate it and i think this is quite quite useful what will exaggerate that response is hypovolemia so that's an indication that, you know, have we got enough body fluids on board? Is this animal hypovolemic? Because if IPPV is having a profound effect, you question your the, the, the volemic status of your patient. Um, I'm talking on a very practical physics uh, terms here, Courtney. This is something you've seen or seen in, uh, in animals during IPPV? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, like you said, the right thing, um, you said exactly what was in my brain is in those healthy patients, when you put that positive pressure into the thorax and you cause a little bit of compression of that vena cava, you can see your waveform and your trace moving a little bit as the body is also trying to go, oh, I need to perhaps do a little bit more just in that initial part of inspiration when we're putting that positive chest uh, pressure in. But in our sick patients that are struggling to compensate that might not have that fluid, you see a very squished trace. And you can also see that on your pulse ox sometimes as well. Um, when you start doing a few hand ventilation with your patient or you switch on the ventilator and you haven't got your IVP set up, you can actually see your trace smush that little bit. So in those circumstances, um, we might need to kind of challenge our patient with some fluids. Yeah. You know, start a few uh, kind of like bolus volumes to get into our patient over time, reassessing what's happening. Is our pressure changing? Is our waveform no longer smushing? Everything like that. But absolutely. And I think we always talk about ventilation affecting cardiac output. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's a hidden thing, isn't it? It's like x-rays. X-rays are dangerous. They're hidden. You can't see it. But when you look at beat by beat analysis with IBP, suddenly you're like, oh, it's real. It's very, it, in that moment, is affecting that patient's cardiac output. And it's very dramatic. You can see it. it. It's very so clear. Yeah. 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 I like. I. I think. Oh, getting a little inside window into that patient's physiology. That's what I like about um, about monitoring is you can't see it from the outside unless you start hooking up things and looking on the inside. So no, absolutely, it's very, very real thing to see. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered an awful lot of ground here talking about IBP. There's probably a lot more we could cover as well, yeah. but I think we're kind of running out of time now. 
I think that's been a, I hope that's been a very comprehensive introduction to IBP. I think it's something that, you know, probably could be done more in practice and people shouldn't be worried about doing it. But it's got a whole wealth of information, particularly for your, your sick patients. I don't think you need to do it on a bitch bay, but, you know, your sick patients, wow, you know, that, there's so much there that's going to really help you, you know, treat them and, and deal with their sickness. Yeah, absolutely. I I I think it has a place in general practice for some of the procedures that we are doing. Absolutely. I don't think we have to have that mindset that it is a specialist universal hospital setting. The equipment you can purchase, if you've got a multi-parameter, you can get the modules, you know, depending on what kind of machine you have, you're maybe looking at like less than a thousand pounds to put these modules on. You've got a little bit of consumable cost there, but you have that with everything. Every time you open up a needle or a syringe, you have that. Um, and yeah, like you said, I think we have just once again <laughs> skimmed the surface on what we could discuss about the topic of, you know, our focus and the podcast. But I definitely want to stress to people, you know, if you if you do have some questions, just to send them through via um, email, which is just clinical support at burtons.uk.com, and we can get back to you whether you you know if you want to talk about heparinized saline or saline, something like that. We will definitely be here to help you. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, we, we welcome questions coming in and, and people supporting this podcast, which I think people have found quite useful from, from the feedback we're having. So on that note, what are we looking at for our next podcast, Courtney? Can you remember what so, we're doing? Yeah, our next two podcasts, Keith, this is, this is the most exciting one for you, I'm sure. It's ventilation. Oh, excellent. OK, brilliant. Well, join us next time for our, our talk about ventilation. And thank you for listening to us today. Goodbye. See you later, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Don't forget to follow our podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And feel free to share this with your team. If you have any questions or feedback for us or simply want to know more about what you've just heard, please feel free to send us an email at clinicalsupport@burtons.uk.com. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Thank you.